0: Well, good morning, Lakewood. It's an honor to be with you. Welcome to our friends who are streaming this morning. We're going to gather in Numbers chapter 13 in just a moment. That's the address in the Word of God, Numbers 13. But I want to begin by passing along a story that was passed on to me by Czech Swindoll years ago. Seems two farmers were in close proximity, their land adjacent. One was an optimist, the other a pessimist, and they often were at the local cafe having a little coffee, you know. And so uh, one day the optimist uh, commented to his pessimistic friend, what a beautiful sunny day. And the pessimist said, it's going to burn up the crops. Shortly thereafter, welcome rain came through the area and the two men were together at the cafe once again. And the comment from the optimist was, what a beautiful rain. It's going to drown the crops. Well, in the course of time, the optimistic farmer acquired an amazing hunting dog. This is an up north story, I'm sure. And uh, looked forward uh, with its remarkable abilities to the upcoming duck season. Duck season came, and the invitation to his pessimistic neighbor was to come duck hunting with me and to meet my brand new hunting dog. Well, in time, (laughs) an unfortunate duck flew, flew by, bang, down went the... The duck and the retriever, <coughs> much lauded, leaped from the blind and walked on the surface of the water over to the late duck and picked it up and walked on the surface of the water, delivered it to its master, not a completely dry, stepped back into the blind. The pessimist, having observed this, was very, very thoughtful and commented, How sad that he can't swim! <laughs> Attitude is a choice. And for the people of faith, God is constantly calling us forward, inviting us to trust him. (laughs) But in the path of our response is an internal battle of the attitudes. Will we become pessimistic And many of you are aware there's lots of reasons that we could become pessimistic. Or will we become a person of obedient faith? Now, you were waiting, some of you, for me to say, or will we be optimistic? Well, it's related, but optimism often is rooted in circumstance. So that's not the opposite of pessimism. Not in God's economy. The opposite of pessimism is obedient faith. A trust not in circumstances, but the God who is sovereign over circumstances. Does that make sense? You and I stand at the threshold of our future. You as a church family here at Lakewood, the threshold of the next steps for your future. God has a plan and a purpose for us. God has a plan and a purpose for you. You're not here by accident, but by his sovereign design. He has a purpose for you at precisely this place in time and in history. He has a vision, and he invites you and I to step into that vision for us in faith. But to do that, we must engage and overcome the battle of the attitudes. We must fix our hearts on how Jesus would want us to respond to his call, in the midst of the circumstances that we currently face. And that's always true. It's true in every generation. The setting is the nation of Israel on the edge of the promised land at the threshold of the fulfillment of God's great call. As we'll discover, and this will be reviewed to many of you, as we'll discover, there is an opportunity here to trust God and step into his promise. And armed with that promise, 12 men are commissioned to spy out the land and to report back. As we'll see, and sadly, 10 of the 12 took their eyes off the God of the promise and saw only the problems of the conquest. Two men were exceptions Caleb and Joshua caught God's vision and urged immediate obedience. Obedient faith, taking of the promised land. Now, we go back here because it's a case study in what I have called the battle of the attitudes. It's a case study of the impact of creeping, expanding pessimism and its effect on vision. It's a timeless study for people of faith because every single generation since Adam and Eve have faced this kind of dynamic the question before us today is very similar to the question that faced Israel on the edge of the Promised Land. Will we trust God? Will we embrace His call on our lives? Will we go forward in faith, or will we deny Him and lose the blessing? So let's let's examine in this case study for a few moments, and I'm going to walk us rather quickly through. Uh, portions of the passage of Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. If you have access to a Bible, again, let's, uh, let's go there. I want to deal with, first of all, the pessimism pattern. Uh, five or six characteristics that are in common in every generation. Characteristic number one, pessimism assumes a negative posture. Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which, I'm giving, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran, and all of them were leaders of the Israelites. And there's a long list given here, identifying each of those honored participants. They give the names. The commission is clear. Moses sent them to explore Canaan, verse 17. Go up through the Negev onto the hill camp country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. They annotate this. It was the season of the first ripe grapes. (coughs) And so they went up. Now, they form an account of the land, they come back, and we'll see in a moment that 10 of the leaders (laughs) led their response to the report with the words, we can't, we can't. In fact, let's look at that, verse 31. The men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they're stronger Than we are. We can't. That's an anthem for the pessimist, for the person who is slipping away from faith. We can't. We can't. Characteristic number two pessimism often appears to be wisdom, always believing that the worst is the wisest assumption, always believing that believing the worst is the wisest assumption. That great iconic figure. Winnie the Pooh has a friend and if you've read children's books recently you know who I'm going to talk about the friend was Eeyore and in the dramatized version of their relationship Eeyore can be counted on to talk like this well I may as well go with him things always look darkest before they get totally black people who've lost the battle of the attitudes typically believe themselves to be the most discerning person in their sphere of influence pessimists often scoff at the visionary because they're certain that anybody who is optimistic obviously doesn't know the facts haven't observed everything that the pessimist has observed now let me interrupt this talk for just a moment to let you know lest you confuse my enthusiasm for condescension, I have a t shirt with a capital P on it for pessimist. In my closet, I have the OCD, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, t shirt as well. If you want to meet with me after the talk, I'm sure that we could make a long list of all the reasons to be discouraged these days, and I'll bet I could get a longer one than you. <laughs> And so I preach to myself with regard to this battle of the attitudes. It's a sermon to me, but I'm glad that you came anyway. All right? Pessimists are experts at seeing problems and obstacles. In most cases, however, the people who live above pessimism see the same obstacles as the pessimists. They just aren't immobilized by them. Pessimism assumes a negative posture. It believes that Seeing the worst is the wisest assumptions. Third characteristic, pessimism operates in the context of fear, not faith. Fear replaces faith when we give ourselves to pessimism. Verse 31 again, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. They are stronger than we are. Characteristic number four, Having set faith aside, pessimists defend their fear by exaggerating the obstacles. Exaggerating the obstacles. Verses 32 and 33. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Now pause there for a moment. If the land desired, devours those living in it, why is there anybody living in it? All the people we saw there are of great size. Now, the earlier report carried information that said, well, in fact, let's look at that. Verse 21. They went up, they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehab, toward Lebon and Hamath. They came through the Negev, etc., etc., And they report back. Verse 27. We went to the land. It flows with milk and honey, but he, and here is its fruit. But... The people who live there are powerful. The cities are, are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Okay? Now, what's that about? Well, there was giantism prevalent in this genetic group. So some of the people in Canaan had inherited that genetic factor Much later on in the Bible, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll know an encounter between David as a shepherd boy and some of the descendants of Enoch and the Nephilim, Goliath, and he had four relatives. David took five stones. It's a story for another day. There were some giants in that. What's this report saying, though? Well, all of the people are of great size. And we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Enoch, come from the Nephilim. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. Now time out. There were some big people in the land. As I said much later, and, and the account is subject to translation, but Goliath of Gath was somewhere in that nine-foot ra- range. Okay? That's a big person. That's bigger than the offensive lineman of your favorite professional football team. That's a big person. However, loved ones, let me be clear. There was no one in the promised land that was 282 feet high. There was no one in the promised land who made the other guys look like wheel <laughs> They were non-existent. When fear takes possession of our heart, we exaggerate the obstacles. And often fear feeds upon itself And many are led away from the faith. Fear is contagious. Pessimism is contagious. We can spread it to our spouse. We can spread it to our children and grandchildren. We can spread it to our closest friends. Fifth characteristic. We're going to move on to chapter 14 now as we just sort of leapfrog through this passage. Left unattended, pessimism moves on from fear to self-pity. Verses 1 through 4. Of chapter 14. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, there's a nice option. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now there's a plan. Let's abandon the God of the promise and go back to slavery. If you've circulated a little bit in the last few months in our culture, you'll hear some plans that are just as good. Wringing of the hands. Let's go back to slavery. There are several sermons here and we only have time for one. (laughs) Some of us are old enough to have some quiet idols. And we wring our hands and say, Well, God, my greatest dream was to give my children and grandchildren America the 1950s. And God says, That wasn't my greatest dream. That wasn't my greatest dream. More on that in a moment. Embracing negativism, false wisdom, abandoned faith, over, be overcome by self pity. Final step at the end of this sequence typically is rebellion against God. And in fact, the true spirit of pessimism is rebellion. There's a quiet, cousin of this that can slip into evangelical circles as well it's a cousin of pessimism fatalism fatalism coming under the guise of just believing in the sovereignty of god now let me talk to that talk with you about that in a moment the sovereignty of god is a glorious reality of scripture It is the truth that gives us hope. It is the truth that propels us forward. It is not the truth that causes us to abandon paddling and go over the falls. God has not called us to fatalism, just as he has not called us to pessimism. Chapter 14, verse 9, rebellion, here it comes. And it's in the appeal of the two men of faith. Here's the, word, here's the phrase. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land. We will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. There's a whole other study in this text. It has to do, what do you mean when you say We? What do, you, what do you mean when you say we? The ten people that brought back the bad report said we can't, we can't, we can't. Well, they were right. They were talking about each other. Joshua and Caleb were also right. When you include God in the we, you can move forward in obedient faith and with assurance. Moses and Aaron fall face down. Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes They cry out, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not rebel against the Lord. I want to insert here a truth about their assignment. God detailed their assignment. Spy out the land report back. God always allows us to participate in some meaningful way in the fulfillment of his promises. After 40 days, as we said a moment ago, of investigation, the spies return, they report in brief, great prize with a great peril. If you're familiar with J.R.R. R. R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, it's a treasure upon which a dragon was sleeping. The land was all that any nation could hope for, but it was occupied. Now, this truth as we move in a moment to the path of faith. The discovery of peril in the path of the promise is part of God's plan. That's a mouthful, but it's important. The discovery of peril in the path of the promise is part of God's plan. Always. It's an invitation to faith. If we do not include we every challenge is impossible. We not include God in the way every challenge is impossible. If we include God, there's nothing that cannot be overcome. Two men focused on the God of the promise, ten men focused on the size of the peril. Caleb said, we should go up and take possession. We can certainly do it. The opponents said, they are stronger than we are. And that, of course... Is God's idea as we face a challenge. The perils in the path of faith are supposed to be stronger than we are so that we'll rely on God, not ourselves. And so we have this litany of pessimism and legacy of pessimism. And now the minority report. It is the pattern of faith. Again, some characteristics. Characteristic number one. Faith is normally best demonstrated under pressure. Every great vision has a trial by fire. It's in that midst of the trial that our faith has the greatest impact. If God has called you to step forward in faith, expect that there will be great opposition and that that experience will engender great opposition. And emotionally, that experience will be intense for you. If you are stepping forward in faith, there will be opposition, and that opposition will create emotional tension for you. I've never met anyone who enjoyed opposition, who enjoyed being resisted or rebuffed or criticized. But a second characteristic comes into play. Faith always stands on the power and promises of God, not personal opinion. Again, chapter 14, verse 9, The land we pass through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Third characteristic of faith. A public demonstration of faith will typically bring about a crisis of faith in others as they're forced to choose between trusting God and going forward or resisting God and taking the consequences. Did you catch that? You step forward in faith, and it will create a crisis of faith for those around you. Now, let's talk about our own struggle. Say that you are, for the moment, losing the battle of the attitudes, and you're having a bit of a pity party. I've had some through the years. And you're feeling really good about feeling pretty bad. The last thing you want to hear in that circumstance is a testimony of faith. Because you're just comfy in that malaise. And God in his providence will bring next to you someone and they'll say, wow, I'm just trusting God. And you feel like you want to poke them. Why is that? Because when someone around us Exemplifies faith. It's convicting when we're floundering. It makes us look at our motives. We don't really want to go there. And this crisis of faith can get ugly because people are forced to confront their own motivations as well as the guilt and conviction of sin. And under this kind of pressure, in every generation, people will face one of a couple of choices. They can embrace the message of truth and obey. We can step into faith or we can try to silence the messenger. It happened here. Verse 10 of chapter 14. The whole assembly talked about stoning them. We're talking there about Moses and Joshua and Caleb. And then something very significant happens. It's in the latter part of chapter 14, verse 10, where we read this. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. In the midst of this tension, in the midst of the foment, in the midst of the outcries, let's stone them, let's go back to Egypt. All of a sudden, God shows up. I believe I shared it with you in earlier talk as your guest, but I'm going to repeat it, um, and it may be new to some of you. It's true every single time in history and in the journey of every generations of faith. When God shows up, he doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. When God intervenes in a conflict, in the midst of a tension, he's not choosing sides. He's taken over. He's God. Sometimes our language reflects a little bit of that struggle of our perception. Well, God is on our side. God doesn't take sides. If there's alignment between the Lord and us, it's because we have chosen his side. Does that make sense? The glory of the Lord appeared in the midst of the crises. Loved ones, God is the defender of all vision that originates with him. We'll all face the battle of the attitudes, and sometimes we may lose. But beware the temptation to give in. Beware the temptation to recruit to doubt and pessimism. Beware the temptation to export your rebellion. Because if we do that, if we persist, if we refuse to yield, God will intervene and we'll be on the wrong side of that intervention. Now, what follows is pretty dramatic, and we don't have time to go verse by verse through the exposition, but what happens is this. I'll just summarize for you. The entire nation, led by 10 pessimistic leaders, are represented by them. Their survival hangs in the balance, and Moses intercedes, and God says, I'll kill them all, and we'll raise up another generation and Moses cries out to God and says don't do that lord the nations will be confused about who you are you're going to damage your reputation don't kill them and God invites Moses to take that step of faith and he does faith acts in love towards those that oppose it Moses was a terrific example of that in this instant but there's a sixth truth faith lacks in love towards those who oppose, it's the fifth characteristic. The sixth is that God will see that faith is rewarded and rebellion is judged. So God spares the nation. And he talks about that. Chapter 14, verse 20, he says this. To Moses, he says, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I'll bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Three exhortations. In every generation, God is calling his people to step forward in obedient faith. In a fallen world, any vision from God for the work of God based on the promise of God is going to be opposed but we need to step forward in faith. Don't argue opinions. Lift up God and his promises. If opposition persists, expect God to intervene. Remain faithful and you'll inherit the blessing. Stand by faith with Caleb and Joshua. Second exhortation. Be alert to your own battle of the attitudes. Creeping pessimism in your own life and in Christians around you. In every generation, the process of pessimism will lead many from false wisdom to fear to self-pity to rebellion to the forfeiting of the blessing. And those who persist in unyielded pessimism will go to their graves, never seeing the blessing attached to the vision they resisted. Let me hit pause here for a second. those 10 pessimistic leaders and the whole nation that had seen God deliver Israel from Egypt. Remember the miracles? The whole generation that had witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea, you know what they didn't see? You know what they did not see? They didn't see the nation of Israel and their children poised on the edge of the Jordan River at flood stage and then cross on dry land. They didn't see their children and grandchildren confronted with the most fortified city in the land of Canaan, Jericho. Double walls, springs inside, storehouses of food, utterly unconquerable. They didn't see God come up with his plan. We're going to take a walk around the city and then we're going to shout. Yay! And then we're going to blow instruments. Boop! And everything's going to fall flat. And you're going to go right in. They didn't see that. They weren't there. They'd perished in the wilderness. One other denim interruption in our talk: "My hair is not salt and pepper. It's all salt." So I'm old enough to talk to my generation. That's fourth quarter people and some fifth quarter people. Are you with me? You and I have lived long enough to be able to observe some things that younger people probably wouldn't catch right away. And we've been spending a lot of time observing in the last months. A lot of time observing. Now here's my challenge. We've got a choice. Which will it be for you and I? Obedient faith or pessimism based on our observations and circumstances? My wife is here today, part of our beloved family is here, generations that are following. If you're as old as me or older, you got a choice. Are you going to be a catalyst of faith or a curmudgeon? I hear the conversations. So you've graduated from high school. That's terrific. Boy, the world is terrible, and it's going to get a lot worse. You're inheriting a mess. I wish it was better. Nothing good is going to happen in the next generation. Have a great day. Oh, by the way, here's a card. (laughs) Don't be that person. We're not talking about blind optimism here. We're talking about obedient faith. I believe that this emerging generation of youth is going to see the miraculous hand of God like never before. Like we have never seen it. I really believe that. And that's not based on circumstantial optimism. There's some rough waters ahead that are not likely to go away because God's purging American believers of their idols, among other things. That's what I was alluding to a few moments ago when I said, you know, I'd hope that I could leave to my children and grandchildren America the 1950s. It's not going to happen. But spiritually, what I want to leave to my children and grandchildren is a legacy of faith. There's not a thing that I have in my checkbook, or in my pile of resources, or in my experience that will help them navigate where they're headed. I have one thing: trust in God. And if you and I who are older can leave them with that legacy, they'll do just fine. Because no matter what happens in the world, if you have unwavering faith in the God of the promise, he will help you navigate the waters that are ahead. A catalyst for faith or a curmudgeon? Third and finally, in terms of these exhortations, Approach the future boldly. The question is not, can we accomplish it horizontally? The question is, is it God's will? If it's God's will, then we will prevail. Rely on his power. Focus on his promise. See the future as Caleb and Joshua did. Twelve men saw the obstacles, Caleb and Joshua saw the opportunity. Twelve men saw trials, Caleb and Joshua saw triumph. Twelve men saw the problem, Caleb and Joshua saw the God of the promise. Backward in pessimism, forward in faith, every generation has that choice, and now so do we. Tell God from your deep heart which it will be as we pray. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all nations. We thank you that you, as praying with believers now, are over our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for clinging to idols which must be tossed aside. Forgive us for so often processing our circumstances and concluding that we, without you, are facing an impossibility. That's part of your plan. Bring us to the place quickly, Lord, where we include you in the we and hit reset in terms of our vision for the future. Lord, we do not trust in circumstance. We trust in the risen Christ. We do not trust in culture. We trust in the body of Christ and your work of the Holy Spirit amidst it. And today we declare to you that we want to be people of obedient faith. Lord, keep us from the things that would keep us from you. Do whatever it takes. And may the honor and glory and praise in our generation and in the generations that follow till Jesus comes be all yours. We ask in your name, amen.